I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Thomas Jones. And today I'm talking to Andrew O'Hagan, the LRB's editor-at-large, who has a piece in the current issue of the paper on what he calls the desire for lost things or the desire we once had for those things. It's a review of Extinct, a compendium of obsolete objects, edited by Barbara Penner, Adrian Forty, Olivia Horsfall-Turner and Miranda Critchley. Hello, Andrew, and thank you very much for joining me. Hi, Tom. So you, you begin with all these objects from the distant past or your childhood and my childhood that soda streams and sandwich toasters and, and walkmans and digital watches lava lamps casio calculators bbc microcomputers and thinking about those sort of things it, it brings back all sorts of feelings and, and memories and even smells from childhood including the time that my friend richard got a glass bottle stuck in his soda stream so fully pressurized pumping and he finally flicked it open and it fired across the kitchen and shattered into a thousand pieces on, on the other side people think they, they know the meaning of true trauma but you've just described it for me <laughs> the exploding soda stream the object that you believed in so much you thought it would transform your entire life but it turns out to sort of cause trouble for you to deny you what a disaster <laughs> how easy was it to, to conjure that list of, of stuff well, the book, of course, is very helpful in the usual LRB way. The book can provide such an occasion for the flying open of floodgates. Um, the arrival of all these objects back into the front of my mind wasn't a difficult journey uh, from back of mind to front because they're never really gone, those objects. They sort of sit there, partly because if you, if you were a child in the 1970s, a teenager in the 1980s, then futurity or a picture of the future was kind of belted at you every day from 55 different directions. We lived in a very kind of futuristic conscious society. Britain was obsessed with the idea of slimline objects and faster trains and amazing planes with pointy beaks that went to New York in three and a half hours. And that was the 70s to us. It was I suppose every era, of course, has its obsessions with particular objects. But there was something about like my childhood, as I've tried to capture it for the piece, that was absolutely dominated by the issue of improvement. And improvement always meant better domestic appliances in my childhood. My mother could have given you a drop-dead gorgeous lecture at any minute of the day on all the things that would improve her life at home. And they were all to do with hoovers or to do with objects that could clean the blinds without you sort of having to get a cloth in between each particular slat. You know, we were suckers for those ads on the back of the Sunday Post, a Scottish newspaper of great renown and um, doubtfulness, which would advertise these gadgets. Billy Conley used to have a great joke about the, there was excitement in his house when suddenly they saw in the back of the Sunday Post an advertisement for the big slipper 
Why have six pairs of slippers, one for each member of the family, when you could have the big slipper, a big long slipper that runs the length of the couch where you all put your feet in? I mean, I remember laughing with pure recognition at that joke because we were all obsessed with hair cutting machines that you could have at home or, you know, chillers you could have in your bedroom. And of course, then you got to popular culture and the whole obsession with, you know, record stacking machines, uh, not to say record players that eventually could have double tape decks in them as well. So yeah, gadgets, now extinct objects, are our Proustian motifs. You know, there's a wonderful obsession of Robert Louis Stevenson's too, about childhood and its things, and how you never really get over them. Or should we better say, you never go over the strength of the desire that you had for them. I think about what you say about the, the Britain in the 70s and 80s, but especially in the 70s, though, that this time of, of industrial decline and the disappearance of, of old ways of, of, well, of heavy industry and the idea that these kind of gadgets could somehow stand in for that and replace what was disappearing. It's always seemed to me a fabulous aspect of core Britishness that, you know, half the time we could barely get to work, but nevertheless, we wanted to go to the moon. Half the time we couldn't pay our bills, but we fantasized constantly about, you know, gadgets and speedboats and things that would transform ordinary life into something quite other. And it's the relationship between desire and actuality that is so interesting to me about Britain. It's not the same everywhere. I mean, of course, every, every nation, every culture has that relationship. And it can be a hysterical one if you look at America. We were obsessed with America's obsession with things. But Britain always had it rather cosily, I felt. You know, that if you could just have this gadget, you know, that turned water, not into wine and, you know, not into anything very expensive, but just into a fizzy drink, that would be fine. <laughs> it's called a soda stream. You know, it seems so transformative because fizzy drinks were at such a premium, you know, in post-war Britain that the idea that you could make them in your kitchen just felt like Avalon and Nirvana had all just arrived at once, you know, that we'd crossed over um, into the place where desires are automatically met. And I love that about Britain. I love the localness of it. And I love the smallness of it. Yeah, we didn't want much. We just wanted it really badly. I mean, soda streams still exist, of course, but there's been some weird sort of class shift in them that now that, you know, people just use them for making water as a way to save on plastic. It's, it's a sort of, it's an environmental, you get your sparkly, it's, it's not about, it's not about make your own lemonade or Coca-Cola. It's about, you make, it's, you're making your own Perrier water now. This kind I mean, of I'm not sure that we, we would allow it, the LRB, the notion that one desire could be an affront to another. But <laughs> if we will allow it, then this is an example, you know, that these um, soda streams where every sort of broken tooth, snaggle tooth kid in the country wanted more fizzy drinks. Now it's a sort of aid to the kind of ethereal life in Britain, the kind of middle class notion that you can sort of not harm anybody whilst having small doses of pleasure. Um, that seems slightly abominable to me, but on the other hand, we must progress, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, but it is totally. But I mean, I actually have. I have to confess, I have one of these new soda streams, and it even has. It's electronic. That has a button. It has three buttons that you can press for different amounts of fizziness, and it, and one of them gives you five blasts of CO two, and one gives you six, and one gives you seven, and it's and it's very sleek and space age, and it's all black, smooth plastic. It's very, 
you know, it looks like an iPhone, as it were. Well. It's trying to look like an iPhone. No, and I it, didn't realise. I really didn't realise I could envy you more, Tom. But it turns out I can. And you've destroyed <laughs> my year by confessing you've actually got the object I've wanted for a long, long time. <laughs> All right, we'll have to we'll have to arrange for the. Uh, we'll pay you for your piece by by with the with the new soda electronic soda stream <laughs> machine. Um, but the, this way of remembering and remembering your childhood. I mean, of course, it's also a way into remembering and writing about and thinking about your mother, isn't it? That you you say that talk about her in the piece and her, her kind of you say a special world of technophobia had gone with her. Well, my mother died recently, and it's uh, the first piece I've written since she died, and I felt. Um, it would be, for me anyway, um, automatic that I would um, begin to think about her in relation to these objects and and technology generally. I mean, she was she was absolutely distanced from technological process in every way you can think of. She had never sent or received an email. She didn't know what the internet was. Um, and she did, as I say in the piece, find smartphones to be um, an instrument of torture, um, that these open and free and seemingly endless communications that existed between members of our family and even worse, members of the community who weren't our family, um, seemed so beyond her. Um, she couldn't believe that um, we were sharing photographs on Instagram or that we were sharing you know, heartfelt opinions on social media and in other places. Um, through our phones. Um, she'd often comment on the fact that the grandchildren were never without their phones. And that's how she would put it. Um, they're never without their phones. Um, do you think they need those? Do you think they love those phones more than they love people, she would say. Do you, what is it about those phones? She just didn't see that our lives since her uh, 1980s and 1990s had been completely transformed. Um, but she hadn't kept with it. And I think that as a there's a whole swathe of Britons who are in that position. You know, people who are, um, you know, understandably addicted to the internet, I think, imagine we were always just waiting for it. Um, that the whole country was a kind of um, blind alley before the internet came to shine a light. But actually, again, as I tried to argue um, in this issue, um, it was quite nice before the internet because your desires were all a bit delayed um, and you were never sure you were going to get the thing or, or find out the thing that you wanted. I remember when I was researching my first book, The Missing, and working at the LRB, you know, I had to go and order up huge volumes of the electoral rolls in Britain to try and find the addresses of people who'd lived in a particular street. It took weeks and you, you, you laboured intensively, not, never quite sure that you would find the address. People were missing in Britain um, almost by, by our very nature. We sort of, the future swallowed us up, us up then in a way that nothing has ever quite passed now since the internet. And that was the world that my mother didn't get. She felt like a relic because everybody else was in touch with the past, even um, her past and their present in a way that she felt was quite foreign. And I suppose that every generation has its has its own list of, of lost objects, the, the things that, you know, our parents missed one set of things. And different, different 
I mean, it's a completely different sort of thing. But I remember when my grandmother being completely amazed that my cousin was taking his trainers off in order to go for a muddy walk. It's kind of, because for her, you know, trainers were this amazing invention that they comfortable shoes that you could go for a walk in. Yeah, and the idea that they would be this, you know, they they were his. These are the shoes that you were keeping nice. Yeah, seems completely baffling. To I mean, that that idea is very crucial. The idea of keeping things nice or keeping things for good or for best. My mother had a whole section of the house that was only for visitors. <laughs> and, you know, she had four boys. It was quite a small house, but it was quite common in Glasgow that you'd have a room, you know, best room, you know, where if visitors came to the door, they'd be led into this room that had a sort of fireplace and sort of, you know, doilies over the back of the armchair. And a big slipper on the floor. <laughs> and a big slipper, yeah. And you were expected to <clears throat> show your best side to visitors and then live in whatever ragtag way you did when when strangers weren't present um in these rooms would be full of objects that were much you know loved you know record players and um this these objects which represented um not hedonism and not fashion in the way that we would understand it now but just aspiration in the old-fashioned sense there was much more aspiration of a, of a rather nervous, uh, class-bound kind in Britain uh, in previous decades. Um, he picked this up in David Kinison's, uh, you know, decade by decade books about Britain. The aspiration has changed so much, you know, um, not just talking about ration books and the limitations surrounding the war, but uh, in the post-war period, the 60s and 70s, there was still this sense of saving up for things. Um, and it's not just to do with the internet, it's also to do with credit and the way that credit works now, that people get things as they want them and then think about paying for them, which is a sort of reversal. We don't really go into that in this piece, but um, it just occurs to me as I'm speaking to you that um, aspiration and delivery on aspiration has changed so much that um, I guess when we think of our things, and as this book suggests, we might extinct things, uh, we're really thinking about versions of ourselves as a culture and as a class, as, a, as various classes, but also individually, we're thinking about who we were as well as who we are. And wasn't that a bit where you, you and your brothers got your mum a, uh, a smart TV? Oh, yeah. So my mum was obsessed with the idea that everybody who lived nearby, her neighbours, all had um, more programmes to watch on their televisions than she did. And she'd say, why have they got all these channels? And my brother Jerry said, well, you, you could have a smart TV. That, that's what it is. It's a smart TV. We'll get you one. So um, we got her one and uh, it was all plumbed in and everything. And um, Jerry was explaining how the remote control worked. And he said, look, mum, you can, you can pause Coronation Street while you're watching it and go and make a cup of tea. And she said, oh, I wouldn't do that. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't do that. And he said, why not? He said, and she said, well, what about everybody else? <laughs> She she imagined that if she was pausing Coronation Street, she'd be pausing it for the whole nation. So that's how um, you know that's how green my mum was about technology. But she she afforded us loads of laughs on that front. Yeah, but also I don't know, but without but also how considerate she was. The idea that you don't because that used to be the thing about soaps, wasn't it? The idea well, it still is that you you're watching it. Everyone's watching EastEnders or Coronation Street or whatever it is, or Blind Date. Everyone's watching it at the same time. And when you're watching Netflix, you're binging a box set you're not taking part in that communal 
group experience anymore. That seems to me a really important point that we mustn't forget, or at least some of us would want to hold on to, is the notion of doing things not only simultaneously, but together. The notion of doing it together was very important about television in Britain in the past, that you all had watched it. We always hear about these water cooler moments now where people talk about what they watched as if that was a kind of amazing sort of, you know, um, turn in the understanding of community. But that was how we lived. Um, I mean, many aspects of how we lived in the past are um, gladly gone and not to be romanticized. But there was something nice, has to be said, about the idea that, and my mother was very for that, you know, that we, we watched things together at the same time. So you could see, I remember in my childhood looking out from my sitting room window as we were watching television across the housing estate outside Glasgow and seeing the same blue lights flashing right across the estate as everybody was watching the same program at the same time. And that's worth remembering. This is the LRB podcast. If you enjoy listening to it, you'll probably enjoy reading the London Review of Books. To subscribe from just £1 per issue, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link below. That reminds me of a, well, a piece I was thinking of anyway that you wrote in December 2018 about a, a lost property register, 1928 to 91, from Glasgow Central Station, which you found at an antiques fair. And obviously it is itself a lost and found object. And again, is now obsolete because you have it, it's all computerised now. The idea that you'd have this physical ledger in which it would say, you know, we found an umbrella with such, such and such a name on it. One thing you say in that because I still wonder if the things I've lost would better describe me than the things I kept. Which is I believe that, idea. you know, I, I think it's almost a kind of, it's almost a rubric for me as a, as a writer. It's been so since the very beginning. It was no accident that my first book was called The Missing. And I've been looking for things and conscious of losing things all my life. And that now refers to people as well. But to concentrate on objects, as I did with that lost property book, I mean, I bought that at an auction. It just came up at um, an auction, Glasgow, the Glasgow Central Station's lost property book seemed to me like an absolute gift to a writer um, interested in not only lost things, but in lost Glaswegian things. I mean, it was made for me, really. And I went after it and won it in the auction and realised, I think correctly, that it was, a, it was going to be a compendium of stories, uh, a compendium of lost voices. People stepping onto a train, um, as you say, leaving an umbrella and it being logged, described, kept for them. It may have been picked up, it may never have been. But the idea of lost things, I think is so central to every fiction writer's notion of their work. I mentioned Proust before, of course, that's the famous example because he made a kind of a great demand on what I've called our sentimental credulity. But I think all novelists understand that. You know, it's there in Joyce as much as it's there in Stevenson, as there as it's, it's in Henry James or, or V.S. Naipaul, a sense that the past is only recruitable in some sense through the things that were there in the past. That It's not to say that the past is just an old curiosity shop, but it is 
nonetheless full of symbols and images and things on terra firma that we want to retrieve if we're going to be able to describe those worlds and conjure with them again. And objects, obviously some have more permanence than others, but they have a way that when people that we've lost, the objects are a way of continuing to connect to them. And even people that we've never personally known, that about 20 years ago, there was a sale at Christie's of, of Marilyn Monroe's personal oh, yes. property, which you, uh, which you wrote about in the NRB. And it was everything from you know the dress that she sang, Happy Birthday to JFK, and which went for over a million dollars to this astonishing list of a plastic cup and blankets, a plexiglass tissue box cover. Who'd have thought it was the, Absolutely. <laughs> like, like one of those? And a piece of paper with the words, he does not love me, written in pencil. And that kind of thing, you can, you can imagine it gives you a, I mean, not, I mean, one, everyone can, we can imagine it gives us a connection. They're like saints relics almost, that somehow we feel we can get close to, to Marilyn, even though she's not. I think that's the before. correct analogy. They are relics, they're saints relics. And um, at the time that Marilyn Monroe's objects, as you described them, were being sold at Christie's in New York, across the road at St. Patrick's uh, Cathedral, St. Patrick's Cathedral, they had the relics, the remains of St. Therese of Lisieux. And there was a direct correlation in my mind between the two, that people were queuing to see these remains of the famous Hollywood actress with the same sense of fervor and wonder that they would approach the saint's coffin. And that seemed to me to sum up to some degree in a hugely flash Warholian way, the meaning of the 20th century in some sense, or at least the meaning of popular culture in the 20th century that Marilyn Monroe's objects were not only willingly paid for, they were huge prices, but sometimes it was just Kirby grips from her hair and there would be little strands of blonde on those grips. And it seemed incredibly powerful in pop cultural terms that people were willing to pay so much for them. And I remember how crowded that auction was and the, the kind of Tommy Hill figures of the world and sort of celebrities and designers and movie stars were all falling over each other to get a hold of, to pay for the, the jeans that Marlon wore in The Misfits, or these Kirby grips, or, as interested me, six little Polaroid snaps of a dog, a dog that was given to her by Frank Sinatra called Mafia Honey, whose voice I later used for a novel. It is an incredible and powerful thing that objects can seem to be as it were, infused with the personality or the meaning of the person who touched them. You know, I think that's one of the ways in which art has always operated. One of the reasons we really adore Caravaggio and the taking of Christ when we visit the, you know, the National Gallery of Ireland, for instance, as I did the other day, is that Caravaggio touched that canvas. Of course, it's the image. Of course, it's the genius. Of course, it's the operation of light and dark. But it's also that he touched it. Rembrandt, in another uh, painting there, he touched that canvas. The genius is to be located physically in the object. And I think things can, uh, we're moving away from domestic objects here, but not so far because one of the things about my mum's stuff, when I started handling it and looking at it and wondering what to preserve the other week, was that that too had been part of her essence. Not only had she touched it, but she'd lived with it. It had meaning for her. And I think when people die, you're left in a sense with a sort of rather hungry notion uh, that you'll be able to hang on to some essence of theirs. And that's usually through their objects, through old photographs, through things they liked, 
And as you say in the, this latest piece, so many of the deleted objects were to do with voice. And you mentioned uh, Seamus Heaney's fax machine, which is now behind glass in a museum, this strange old... It's sort of very... Uh, things like fax machines, which were around for such a short period of time that you don't... I mean, what was the lifespan that is 20 years? Maybe less than 20 years, even. They, kind of, they appeared at some point in the 80s and disappeared at, by the end of the 90s. They've gone. gone by the end of the 90s and was so crucial, Tom, in the life of an office um, at that time. I mean, that fax machine at the London Review of Books, which I know a lot about because that was the fax that would receive, you know, material from machines such as the one you just described, Seamus Heaney's or Harold Pinter's or Susan Sontag's, as I mentioned, or, you know, all our contributors, Hilary Mantel, Christopher Hitchens, faxing from a hotel somewhere in, in the world, you know, the bleep and thud and thunk of those machines as they spat out written material was part of the everyday life of a magazine then. And that whirring and high-pitched squealing was part of the excitement you felt as a new piece was arriving from a favoured contributor. So the machine itself is a repository of hopes and dreams. That's just the way it is. You know, when I saw Seamus's fax machine behind glass at Balachi, at Home Place, the museum in County Derry, that houses so many of Seamus's manuscripts and things, that museum now has a little bit of my own history in there. When I looked at that fax machine, I could recall poems coming from it to the magazine. And I think that's how it works, that we start to locate ourselves, not only in our things and, and our family's things, but in the things that other people used. Um, and that fax machine, which I suppose is almost the definition of defunct, is completely alive in my mind. And, you know, as alive as the lines of Seamus's poems, really. Yeah. The other thing about that fax machine, that it was a way... I mean, it's a form of communication between people, isn't it? It's a way of connecting people. And the idea that it can continue to have that role or in some sense have that role, even after one of, one of the people has died, that there's still, the, the, the link is still there. It becomes a kind of powerful ethical conundrum that, you know, we're all material. You know, we don't want to get into the philosophy of was Seamus more valuable than his fax machine or, or equal to it. But it's interesting to me that these objects persist when we don't physically, very often, it's possible that that machine will be behind glass for centuries, centuries after Seamus is gone and his voice, which we knew so well and listened to with such fascination, has vanished from the world as, a, as an active thing. That's the level in which objects do exist. I mean, it's about persistence, about lost time, and about connection, communication with the world. I mean, it's no accident, I think, that I feel... Uh, I felt moved to write this piece at the time when my mother was dying because that question, which isn't just a question for writers, of course, but for everybody about what remains, what will remain, that's not a mawkish question. That's just a cornerstone question. That's just an everyday big one that we never really get away from. That it has its funny sides too that you wonder, you know, because nostalgia, of course, has a part to play in all of this. And, you know, as I'm talking to you now on the desk, I'm, I'm sitting at Tom, I have in front of me a 45 single, the one single recorded by a band I was in when I was 15. The band was called The Big Gun. And when I showed this little 45 to my daughter, who's 18, she was completely and utterly baffled as to what the thing was and said, what do you do with that now? And 
said, well, you'd put it on a machine and a needle would go on and it would turn. And it, as I was describing it, I felt I was describing something from the, you know, the 14th century. Yeah, I mean, I found my trying to explain what a mixtape was to my children the other day, and you sort of beginning. Well, it's like a Spotify playlist, but you sort of had to do it, and that having to use those those terms. I mean, there is that thing about the physicality of it that you couldn't find a bunch of Spotify playlists in an old suitcase, and you end this latest piece with you finding these these old cassette tapes in a suitcase. I don't know if you want to talk a bit. About well, that. that was lovely actually, because I I had completely forgotten that they existed. And I'd forgotten that notion, not of the mixtape, we all remember that because it was the main way you got girlfriends and boyfriends when I was young, was that you made them such an impressive mixtape and handed it to them in the class that they just were swooning with admiration and forgot the fact that there was nothing else attractive about you um, temporarily. Yeah, that as an aid to um, procreation, that that disappeared from our lives uh, pretty fast, but Finding those tapes was like bumping into a piece of lost time that was so specific as to be just a frozen moment. It was literally frozen. These tapes, when I opened them up, said things like on the cover, the Queen is dead. You know, that must have been a recording of the album before I had the money to buy the album. You would do that. You'd get your your mates to tape records that they had that you hadn't got and everything but the girl. But the, the interesting thing to me was that the tapes were stopped halfway through whatever song in each respective tape. And when that when I pressed pause or stop on that tape in 1990 and then packed up my student digs and moved to London and put that suitcase in my mother's cupboard, that was over 30 years ago. Those tapes had never been played so when I pressed stop, I effectively stopped time for those objects, but also for a part of my own consciousness as well. And when I opened them back up, it was like being given a gift from the past, as if a moment had flowered right in front of you. I could put them back in the machine and press play, and they would just pick up as if nothing had happened. And that seemed to me a very powerful literary symbol, a very powerful symbol about memory. And about how life is, that we think our lives are so sort of vastly sort of complicated and drawn out. But in fact, you can stop a tape in 1990 and pick it up in 2022. When machines that played them are gone, when the bands that, that are recorded have long since split up, you know, it's, it's just, it's a fascinating thing to me. What you've just described is almost what you do in your most recent novel in Mayflies, that you have the first half of 1986, and that's where you press stop, and then you press play again in 2017. Absolutely. So that movement of that and finding, and, that, and also the question of the, the music of the 80s and the, and the objects. And obviously it's about remembering a person, it's about remembering a, a friend who's gone through, mm. through objects and through music that, that you shared. Imagining or remembering the 80s in that novel, how, I mean, how many things did you have to check, as it were, to make sure that you weren't actually misremembering from something that actually didn't come along till 1988? Or did you not worry well, too much about that? Because of the, the, the fact-checking regime that editors like you, uh, Thomas Williams, <laughs> brought in at the LRB, uh, we all now think endlessly of the checkability of things. I mean, I remember magazine, literary magazine production, before fact-checking, when we just <laughs> fly by the seat of our pants and hope that the editors spot any glaring errors. But, you know, there is a much tighter regime of intervention and checking now. So it's had an effect on all of us, all of, all, the, all of the writers. We all 
triple check everything. But and of course, I did my best with mayflies to make sure that the things I remembered were actually as I described them, not just lyrics and you know things that could be checked. You see, but objects, you know, that that you would have had, you know, that particular lighter that I've got them lighting cigarettes with in a pub in Manchester in 1986. Was Zippo's common then? I had to check that. I remembered a lot of flaring Zippos in the corners of pubs, but I wasn't sure if I was grafting that on from later. You can do that as a writer, and it's good to check. And I did, I did do that. But I have to say that the flow of material and of things was very, very constant and very, you know, and very natural in the writing of that book. That's to say, the the material and the scenes were utterly available in the way that old pop lyrics are available to you decades after you last sung the song. You know, you could stick on a Cure album or a Clash album right now, and you'd find that you and I were able to chant along quite happily to the songs. I haven't sung those songs in decades. And I think sometimes as a writer, your material is like that. It's kind of deeply rehearsed in your imagination. It's already present in some way. I don't want to get into the mystical elements of this. It's not, it's not so much that. It's just, it's part of the human imagination that there are, there are things that are just well masticated before you swallow them. And, that, and I think that's, that, that's the way with mayflies is that, I mean, even before this writing this essay, I had no idea I was going to write about extinct objects, but I'd, in a sense, foreshadowed it as you cleverly point out, um, with Mayflies, that that is a book where where we press stop on their lives and then jump 30 years. It's exactly what happened with the suitcase in my mother's cupboard. I didn't know that was going to happen. I didn't know the the suitcase existed. But it was the same technique in that it must have appealed to the same thing in me, which is that you you could try to enter lives and understand lives as um, as retrievable narratives. And at the centre of them often is a lost person. And Mayfly is obviously Tully, the central character, is in danger. And 30 years later, the meaning of that early friendship and all its objects comes to full fruition. And I think that happens to us again and again. And when our parents die, it happens in a big way. That suddenly they're like a drawstring. They're passing is like a drawstring pulling all those years and decades and forgotten things onto one thread. Maybe just to, to finish with, the, the, the one thing that you write about in the piece which I'd never heard of was the Kodak Flash Cube. Oh, yeah. You're younger than well, me. <laughs> but this, I mean, that's clearly hard because everything else had still sort of persisted. You know, I remember everything else. But what was a Kodak Flash Cube? Oh, the Kodak Flash Cube, man. I mean, it, it was it, you, it was a little, it, it was like it sounds, it was a little um, plastic uh, flash that you connected to the top of your Instamatic camera and it would turn, there was a little mechanism that would cause it to turn when you depressed the shutter and flash, but also turn the flash. So the, the next, that had four flashes in one cube. So the next face was ready for the next picture. So it kind of flashed and moved on, but it incinerated the facing of that particular flash in a way that was so amazing that, you know, the bulb would just, sort of, you know, there was this sort of decimation inside the cube that people like us who are interested in metaphors, you know, were overwhelmed by the power of it, you know, that it would both capture and consume the moment in a way that I think life does, time does.
So the passing of the of, of, of the flash cube, I mean, I thought they would never go. They seemed such genius to me that suddenly at home you could light up these rather sort of grey Scottish faces around the Christmas tree with a flash cube that was suddenly not only light up all this sort of um, whiteness on their faces, but also make their eyes instantly red. <laughs> that was that was one of the unfortunate side effects of flash bulb technology in those years. Um, red eye. But so I've got I've Polaroids of us as children where we are sort of looks sort of alien and frightened around a Christmas tree. <laughs> but yeah, the uh, the flash cube was something. And did it smell? I mean, did it smell? Was there a smell of burning plastic? When there, there was a. I, if you pay attention, there was. I mean, uh, people often advertised it as kind of odorless, and it sort of got you away from that old, proper glass flash bulbs that exploded or popped. Famously used the sound of uh, them used in Martin Scorsese's Raging Bull. This brilliant technique where. The, the, the camera turns very fast and all these bulbs start exploding and he captures that very kind of kind of almost interior implosion sound. There was a bit of that with the Kodak flash cube and there was a smell as well, by the way. There was a kind of slightly sulfurous but distant because it was it was it was contained inside this little cube. But um I detected it and I can still remember it. It was ever so faint, but it was definitely there. And it added to the thrill that you were actually kind of burning up the moment. And I loved that, you know, and recalled it as, as soon as I as soon as I read this book, Extinct. Yeah, burning up the moment. Andrew Hagen, thank you very much. What a pleasure, Tom. You can read Andrew Hagen's piece in the current issue of the LRB, along with Stefan Collini on the future of the BBC, Emily Witt on Sheila Hetty, and Ariane Chavizi on the cost of living crisis. The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes. The music is by Kieran Brunt.